All right, well, let's pray one more time. Um, not only is it Palm Sunday and then we're moving into Passion Week and Easter, um, but in, in our discipleship book that we're working through this year, we've moved into a new chapter. And so for the next four Sundays, starting with this one, we're primarily reflecting on the cross and sin and repentance, right? This is the good news. This is the gospel. And so this morning, my hope is as we, as we explore a little bit um, Palm Sunday, Jesus rolling into Jerusalem and he knew what he was there to do, right? His, he was set towards the cross. The significance of that day, for us to really understand it, we need to understand why he had to come in the first place. And so with the backdrop of Palm Sunday, we're gonna take a look at why sin is such a big issue. And so we're gonna talk about the nature of sin and then begin to look ahead to what Jesus has done for us on our behalf, amen? So let's pray and invite him to do that. Listen, if you're a believer this morning, you're like, hey, I think I, I understand the sin thing. <laughs> I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. If you're like me, while I am redeemed and forgiven, I'm still being sanctified, right? He's still working off the rough edges. And so sin's a reality in our lives. And so my hope this morning is that we would recognize anything he wants to highlight in our own lives, but friends, also, we've got to learn how to, how to communicate to a world in need the reality of, of the world's need for Jesus. And so even if this morning is just equipping us a little bit to know, how do I talk about this stuff? How do I encourage another friend that maybe hasn't come to the Lord yet? Maybe this could be some equipping for that, okay? So let's, let's pray and invite the Lord to speak to us this morning. So Jesus, thank you for Palm Sunday. Thank you for your visitation. God, that you came on our behalf. You willingly allowed yourself to be crucified and killed so that you could redeem our lives, so that we could be forgiven of sin, so that you could deal with once and for all the consequences of sin, the, the deep separation from you, God, and ultimately death, eternal death apart from you. God, that you came to deal with all of that. Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Grow us in our own walk with you, our own understanding of what you wanna free us from and bring us into. And God, help us to carry good news with us wherever we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, so we're gonna tackle this this morning. Um, we're gonna kind of look at aspects of the nature of sin and, and sort of, recognize some ways that sin kind of sinks its teeth in. And then we're gonna look to some specific things Jesus did on Palm Sunday that, that show us how he addresses this issue of sin in our lives, all right? And so number one, as we look at this, um, we're gonna approach this from the standpoint of how sin's nature operates. Um, if you were studying in the book this week, you saw there was kind of a whole page on this. So sin begins with unbelief, all right? And so our first point this morning is gonna be talking about unbelief. And then unbelief gives birth to pride, where I begin to put myself in his place. And then when, when pride is kind of fully formed, it leads to, to living in disobedience. That's how sin unfolds. So we're gonna look at unbelief, pride, and ultimately disobedience this morning. Sounds like a fun Palm Sunday message, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, y'all should be excited. All right, so sin starts by drawing us into unbelief. So 
let's just look at where this all started. And then whether you look at this story and go, well, man, Adam and Eve, they ruined it for all of us. No, no, no. Adam and Eve did what we now all do. All right? It's just a pattern that we have been repeating. It might look a little different, right? I might not be having a conversation with a literal snake, um, but there is a shining one who draws us and appeals with sin, to draw us in. And so the first thing that he does is, is he, he roots in unbelief. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent, the shining one, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Before he even tells his lie, he already sows the seed of doubt. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we, we got any good like Sunday school kids who grew up in church? Like, is that what God said? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? No. So the first thing the enemy does is he tries to plant unbelief and he does it with a lie. This is how sin always starts. Sin always starts with a lie because the primary goal is to instill unbelief in our hearts. Because the enemy knows that if he can bring a wedge between us and the God who loves us and made us, if he can even just get that little wedge in, the break happens and he can come and have his way. And so unbelief, it always starts with a lie. Verse two, the woman spoke to the serpent. Well, okay, problem number one, <laughs> we should run away from talking snakes. All right, if you get nothing else out of this this morning, run away from snakes in general is kind of my principle. But um, for sure, if they start talking to you, run away. But she decides it's a good idea to talk to this snake. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. I want you to pay such close attention to how she says things because it shows the subtlety of how we get drawn into stuff. This isn't about blaming Eve. If you read this story and think, look what Eve did, you're missing it. This needs to be, look what I do. Look what I do. And so she seems to be correcting him, right? No, God said, you should not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So if her first mistake was even being willing to entertain the lie, right? She's already engaging in a conversation now. Oh, this is kind of interesting. I'll engage. If her first mistake is entertaining the lie, the next mistake is another way that lies operate. See, lies aren't just um, saying something that's not true. Lies are also about twisting or adding to what's true. Eve added something here that God never said. She said, we're told not to touch it. Genesis chapter two, verse 15, where God spoke on the issue. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Hey, there's some work involved and there's some joy involved. You get to live here and take care of this place and enjoy it. Verse 16, and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
do you notice how this contrasts against what the enemy is trying to do? God lavishes bounty upon us and the enemy says he's a withholder. He tried to start by saying he's not letting you eat any of it. God's a withholder when in fact God has lavished a bounty. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He didn't say don't touch it. Now, it's probably a good idea. But see, this is what we do as people. We, we love to invent a bunch of extra things that we have to do. We make following him a lot more burdensome than he ever intended. We're wonderful at creating all kinds of rules and regulations. And what those end up doing is they, they further affirm the idea that God's no fun and he's a withholder. Think about how people view religious people, people who follow God, right? No fun, no smiles. And see, when we start adding in rules he didn't intend, we're contributing to that lie. Instead of basking in, in all the bounty, all the beautiful things he has to offer. And so she adds in this little religious rule, I'm not gonna touch it. Now, probably a good idea, but still, it's adding to what he said. Here's the other thing I noticed. I had never really paid attention to this before this morning. And y'all can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I didn't even notice it earlier in the week. It was like this morning, final notes, I'm looking through this. She says in verse three or verse two, no, three, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree. She didn't say of the knowledge of good and evil. She said that's in the midst of the garden. It had become her focal point the appeal of the one thing she couldn't have is what's in the middle of the garden. Do you see that? Isn't that how sin gets its claws in? That one thing that holds my gaze, holds my attention. Other things just start to fall to the wayside and not be as valuable, not as important. And I get caught up in this. It holds my attention. And so all of this all of this stuff, it, it filters in and it culminates in this one final lie. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God's withholding from you. And in fact, God's doing it by lying to you. The enemy tries to make God out to be the liar. This is how sin operates. It's how temptation works. We flirt around with it until the sin looks more appealing than the reasons not to sin. The love and desire of that thing becomes more important than real love. Anybody else lived any of this? Can you see how there's even certain things in your life that the enemy will use to draw you away from the one you love and the ones you love? And it so captures our attention and then we justify, we tell ourselves, it's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal. It's not really gonna lead to fill in the blank. And we cooperate with lies. And see, it, it all starts with this idea of unbelief. 
So what does Palm Sunday have to do with this? <laughs> okay, we're in the garden here, but like, what does Palm Sunday have to do with this? I want you to see something interesting. It's an example of something that Jesus does and longs to do for all of us. Jesus longs to reveal himself to us so that unbelief can be replaced with faith. He longs to reveal himself. This was a significant day. Palm Sunday was significant. First of all, if if you read through the gospels, you'll already get this imagery. There was a buzz because people understood that it was like biblically and prophetically like time for the Messiah to show up. They're looking for one. And so they're ready for the Messiah to show up. And so when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, he knows like, this is the big moment. Like I'm, I'm fulfilling long held prophecies where, where God's people, Jewish people, they are looking for their Messiah. And he rolls up to Jerusalem fulfilling prophecy and look at his, his reaction when he rolls up. Luke 19 verses 41 and 42. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Why did he weep? Verse 42, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He goes on to describe the devastation Jerusalem's gonna face because they missed their visitation. Friends, the heart of God is to reveal himself to us. He wants us to see him for who he really is. See, that's what the lie is all about. The lie is all about twisting who he is and getting us not to trust him. God wants us to see him for who he really is. Knowing that if we see him for who he is, that's what makes for peace. He longs to restore. He comes in love. His original intent was love. You know, I don't have all the answers for like, why did God make a Satan? You know, why did he put the tree in the garden in the first place? But, but one of the things going on there that I firmly believe is that God knows real love is chosen. Real love is chosen. And so by giving that one thing and giving us a choice to say no to that in order to say yes to him, we could choose to love him back. The God who already loves us fully, wholly, completely, we could choose to love him back. And so is faith involved as, as a counter to unbelief? Absolutely. There is a step, there's an element of faith. I have to choose to believe that he's real and that he is who he says he is. I have to choose to believe that. But listen, Jesus doesn't leave us on our own. Faith, biblical faith is not blind faith. It's not. Jesus longs for us to have a revelation of him, longs for us to have these aha moments. In fact, just one example is after his resurrection, Thomas is going, hey, unless I see those scars and I feel that wound in his side, I'll never believe. And does Jesus say you're out? No. Feel the scars. Put your hand in my side. See and believe. Friends, I understand that there are seasons of questioning and doubt and struggle. I don't mean to diminish that. I think there's there's legitimate things at times that we have to wrestle through. 
that we're struggling through. But I believe that a, that a lot of what masquerades as doubt and unbelief is, is willful doubt and unbelief. I would rather I not have to answer to a God. I would rather cooperate with the lie. I don't mean to recommend this movie, but if you've ever seen the original Matrix movie, there's a character who's been freed from the bondage of the Matrix, and he decides, I, I would rather have the old lie than live in this hard truth. And so he's like, I'd rather eat something fake and unreal that tastes good than live in reality. I think for many of us, it's not about whether we really believe there's a God or not. We'd, we'd prefer to believe that there's not a God to answer to. And so sin sets its hook. The enemy throws out his temptation to appeal to us. God didn't really say that. God's not really like that. And you're not really gonna die. And so where does unbelief then lead? It leads to pride. It leads to pride. I wanna, I wanna show you something really cool. I actually skipped ahead there for about two minutes by, by mentioning pride. We'll get to pride. There's something really cool that happens on Palm Sunday that's a big revealing of how incredible God is, something that's meant to instill our faith. And so I wanna give you a taste of this. And then in my notes is a sermon I preached several years back. It's something I learned years ago. Um, but I, I want y'all to see this because it's so incredible. It's one of my favorite things about Palm Sunday. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus was fulfilling a very specific prophecy. And if we'll hear it, it's meant to instill belief in the place of unbelief. So check this out. In Daniel chapter nine, 500 years in advance of Jesus' arrival, there's this prophecy in the middle of Daniel nine. I'm gonna read just verses, verse 25 for a minute. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So here's what's happening here. Daniel and Israel and now Judah, like they are in bondage. They're in captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem's been destroyed. And Daniel is getting a prophecy from the Lord that, that looks ahead to the moment when they'll get to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And ultimately the Messiah is gonna show up. So I wanna show you something. We can go ahead and put this on the screen. Did it all fit on one slide? It did not. Okay, we're gonna do a few different slides here. So y'all ready for some math this morning? I was told there would be no math on a Sunday morning. What's up with this? I'm putting it on the screen. You can check my math later. So it's really cool when you pay attention to the details in the Bible though. So there's this specific prophecy. Okay, so 69 weeks is talking about a period of years, okay? So this is 69 periods of seven years. Are you with me so far? 69 periods of seven years. Jewish calendar is 360 days. So 69 times seven times 360 gets us to, you guys all did the math in your head, right? All right, 173,880 days. Why does this matter? Okay, this matters a lot because Nehemiah received a command 100 years later 
from King Artaxerxes. And we know historically the date, March 14th, 445 BC. And on that date was the declaration that Jerusalem could be rebuilt. That's the first marker that Daniel gave, okay? Now, what happens if we get our calendars out and we count out 173,880 days later? We arrive at April 6th, 32 AD. Now, you can look in my notes later to see all of this, but because we know historical dates where certain Roman emperors came into being, in fact, Luke's gospel tells us what year reign it was of a certain Roman emperor when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, we can calculate this stuff. We know when that emperor was put into power. And so tracing these dates, we know that the Passover that Jesus would have been crucified on was a little bit later this week. And that April 6, 32 AD was Palm Sunday. That should blow our minds if we've never heard that before. That should blow our minds if we've heard that a hundred times. The Bible, 500 years in advance, predicted to the day that the Messiah would show up in Jerusalem. And here comes Jesus riding on the donkey. And you know what? He knew what day it was. That's why he wept, because he realized they're all missing it. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and they're all missing it. And he wept. Friends, I pray that we won't miss the revelation that Jesus wants to give you and I of who he is. That our unbelief would be replaced with faith of a firm foundation of faith, a God who longs to make himself known, to reveal to us what he's up to, what he's doing. He wants us to have those aha moments that instill faith in our lives. And so friends, the antidote to unbelief is a revelation of Jesus that leads to faith in Jesus, that we might see him for who he really is. And that leads us to our next point, pride. So unbelief, culminates in pride. What do I mean by that? I mean, putting myself as judge, as king. And I might not ever say it out loud, but ultimately as God. Pride is me putting myself in a place I was never intended to be. And so unbelief leads there. If he's not real or he's not who he says he is, then I can justify in my mind me being in charge. Look at what happens next in Genesis 3. The serpent mentions to the woman again, we'll pick up where we left off in verse four, says to her, you will not surely die. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He sows all those seeds of doubt and then he appeals to her pride. You will be like God. You can sit on the throne of your life. It's the ultimate lie. Verse six, I'm just gonna read the first half of this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, he appealed to her pride and she bought it, hook, line, and sinker. She looked at it and went, man, that looks pretty good to eat. Looks good, I bet it would taste good. 
man, it would, it would make me like God. Look at all the wisdom I would get from it. The enemy appealed to the place he always appeals. I don't know if you caught it when I was reading those, but he appealed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He uses all the same tactics still. He appealed to all three of those. This is what John's talking about in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. I want, to, want you to see how this opposes, it directly opposes God's love in our lives, our love relationship with him. Check this out. Beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, he's making it clear there's a choice here. There's a distinction. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Verse 17. He's being really honest with us. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's he saying? Pride destroys. Pride kills. Love redeems. Love is eternal. See, pride is the ultimate culmination in, in rejecting him. I reject him and I put myself in his place. And this is all happening subtly, right? Like, it's just a little step at a time, a little bit of cooperating with that lie, with that unbelief. And we, and we just, we ease into it. So I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? This, I, this idea of pride, like, it bothers me. It has bothered me many times as a human being that I don't get to make all my choices myself. Like I want to believe like I can decide and I'm in charge and I can choose what's right for my life. And the idea of having to obey a God is like offensive to me. It's been offensive to me at times in my life. We think of it as so like controlling and restricting and we don't understand this is about how we were made and designed. He can handle the role of being God because that's who he is. I cannot handle the role of being God. It destroys me and it hurts other people. And in fact, the idea of, of something being um, not allowed is loving. Guess what? I have a loving friendship with Alex. I, I hope so. I think so. We got a loving, maybe it feels weird calling it a loving friendship. No, yeah. It's a manly, loving, godly friendship, okay? We're bros. All right. And guess what? As friends, like, there's all kinds of things like we enjoy time together, we vacation together. Like there's just, there's a lot that we do there. But guess what? There's some things that are off limits. My wife is off limits. His wife is off limits. And as friends, that should be okay. Like, I, dude, really? You're just withholding your wife from me? Or man, I'm a jerk. I'm withholding my, like, okay, I realize this is like a, maybe a weird example. But it is a weird example. That's the thing, right? We go, it would be absurd for that to even be on the table then why do I think it's such a big deal that God would say there's certain things that are off limits? I can experience a full, loving relationship with God and it's actually a healthy aspect of love that there are certain things that are off limits. That is his territory, not mine. Glory belongs to the Lord. 
pride says, I hate it when sports players do that. I, I love watching sports, but when, have you ever seen these guys that turn around? Some of them do this. At least there's the name of the team on the jersey. Have you ever seen the guys that do this? That's where their name is on the back of their jersey after a good play. I go from thinking, what a great play to, oh, dude, really? No, but look at the name on the back. I'm grabbing hold of what belongs to him. Glory is the Lord's. He's God. He's king. He's the judge. I can't handle that job. When I try to do it, even in my own little small way in my life, it wreaks havoc. It wreaks havoc in my own life. It wreaks havoc in the lives of people around me. When I try to be judge and king and ruler in just my little house, problems follow quickly. Is this making sense? Pride. Well, the, the consequences of pride are this. Watch what happens. As it destroys relationships, watch what takes place. I'm gonna skip down to verses seven and eight. Then the eyes of both were opened. This is Adam and Eve together, all right? They've now, they've now swallowed the fruit. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Pride leads to covering and hiding. Leads to covering and hiding. Pride separates relationships because to protect my pride, I gotta start putting some walls up. Name me one friendship marriage relationship, sibling relationship that has benefited from the presence of pride. Name one. You got any? I don't. It separates. It destroys. We put walls up. We cover and we hide. Because while pride says, look at me, it also is saying at the same time, don't afraid of being exposed for what I really am. It destroys from the inside out. And so pride leads to covering and hiding. We stop being real and we pull away from those who love us. Pride is destructive. How does Palm Sunday answer pride? Well, because we have a humble king. What did Jesus do? He knows He's riding in as the Messiah, as the promised king. So what instructions does he give? Hey guys, go into town and find me a donkey. I'm pretty sure if I'm riding into town as the king, I've got me like a white stallion or something. He rides in on a donkey. Go get me a donkey. He does this unusual thing and he knows why, and the disciples only connected the dots later. Matthew's gospel records this in Matthew 21, verses four and five. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Remember the first thing, revelation breaks us free from unbelief. Behold, 
See your king. And how is that king addressing pride? He's coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Friends, our promised king is a humble king. He was fulfilling another prophecy there from Zechariah 9.9. Our king comes humbly. In answer to our pride comes a humble king. And our grasping to be God, he chooses to be like us. How, that should, the fact that Jesus even came should be mind-blowing. God said, oh, you were aspiring and grasping to be me? <laughs> Sorry, how's that working for you? Probably not good. But guess what? I'll come be you. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. And he didn't just ride a donkey, friends. He was crucified on a criminal's cross because he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. That's our Jesus. In answer to our pride comes our humble king. So how do we respond to him? I, I love this. Two simple ways. And really these two things are kind of the same. You'll see it in a second. But there's two ways his disciples responded to him in this moment. The first thing they did in response to their humble king is they obeyed. Like, what, what a concept. I've got pride, I'm in charge. I can respond to my humble king by obeying him, putting him back where he belongs. Verse six and seven, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. They obeyed the king, that was how they responded. Secondly, what's the next thing they did? Verses eight and nine. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They obeyed the king. They worshiped the king. You wanna see pride dealt with in your life? Start worshiping him. And in fact, healthy obedience is really just a worshipful response. That's what it is. So that's why I said they're really kind of the same. Biblical obedience is an act of worship. God, you're king and I'm not. Why wouldn't I follow and obey you? You're glorious. You're majestic. You're humble. You came like me to rescue me from unbelief and from pride. You know, I thought it was so cool looking at this this week. Part of their worship wasn't just like saying nice words. The word Hosanna means save us. Worship is saying, God, help. Like I, I appeal to the one that's greater than me and stronger than me, the one that's God. God, help. God, save me. And I, I don't know if you caught this, but I love what they do here. How are they responding to their unassuming, humble king? They're taking branches and laying them on the road and they're taking their clothes and laying them on the road. What did Adam and Eve do in pride in the garden when they were exposed? They hid themselves with branches and then God clothed them with animal skins. You know how we respond to our humble king? We stop pretending. Because he's humble, I can be real around him. I can go, 
here I am. I stand before you naked in every sense of the word. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally. God, I'm, here I am. I can trust you, my humble king. I lay down all my covering up. I lay down all my hiding, all my running. How do I respond to the humble king? With humility. You can't worship and obey without humility. But our humble king comes first and makes it easy for us because he's humble and approachable. What's the antidote to pride? We need a revolution. We need a revolution. You know, Jesus' entry as king, that's the declaration of a revolution. Do y'all realize that? There was a system of government that was already set up. The Romans were in charge. There were Jewish prefects who were figurehead kings like Herod. And Jesus coming in as the promised king was a revolt. Some people in their pride did not want a king. Some people in their pride thought they knew what the king should look like. Some of the people that were present when Jesus were rolling in, they wanted him to come and kick out the Romans. They didn't want the humble king. They wanted the big, bad, strong king that was gonna knock everybody over so they could get their way. Even, even his revolution was like upside down of what we would expect. He came humbly and sacrificially. He laid down his rights as king to come in our place. That leads to the third thing, disobedience. It's the culmination of this. When I'm walking in unbelief and I've set myself up in pride as king, well, now I, I do what I wanna do. And I walk in opposition. opposition. True disobedience isn't just about breaking a rule. It's about rejecting the ruler. It's a full break in relationship. I don't want him to be ruler. I'm ruler. And so it culminates in disobedience. I kind of I skipped over the part where she ate the fruit just so I could make the distinction of these things here. So unbelief, pride, and now back to Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, now she acts. Now she acts. And she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We end at disobedience. We arrive at the point where we begin to act apart from God. And isn't it interesting that the first thing Eve did is the same thing we all do? You know how we make ourselves feel better about disobedience? We just, we all encourage each other to do it. Sin wants company because it makes me feel better. And so we influence each other away from God. And sadly, this trend just continues down through the generations, right? We normalize rejecting God's rule. We make it normal. In our societies, we make it normal. And so if we normalize unbelief and we normalize pride, in fact, encourage pride, yeah, look at that guy pointing at his back, right? Like we cheer it on, we teach our kids through movies or whatever else, follow your heart, follow his heart, 
and he'll redeem your heart. Not follow your heart. I don't want to get off on a whole like, I don't mean to be anti-Disney. I mean, I watch some Disney movies, but we do instill some really crummy things in our kids sometimes. <laughs> like we just normalize pride and sin and unbelief and go your own way and do your own thing and find your own purpose. And then we wonder why the world's such a mess. We've normalized disobedience. So what do we do then? Friends, it's gonna take something dramatic to break us free from our normalized disobedience, to wake us up from it. And it's interesting, you know, the first thing Jesus does when he rides into town, there's people celebrating that he's there. Not a lot, like there's, a, there's some, there's others that are skeptical. There's, you know, Pharisees and chief priests scheming to kill him, but there's people celebrating his arrival. What is the first thing that he does? Matthew 21, very next verse, verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? He's got their attention. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. How does Jesus try to wake us up out of our disobedience that we've normalized? He flips some things over. Y'all've got things upside down. Flip. This is not just a random, angry rant. The, uh, there's other gospel accounts that make it clear this was thoughtful and intentional. He knew what he was doing. Because see, the temple was only ever a picture of you and I. We are his temple. That's what the New Testament teaches us. We're now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like the, the temple that was given was just to show that God longed to make his home with us. And it, it points to us. Friends, how is he gonna deal with disobedience in our lives? We need a renovation. The furniture needs to be moved around a little bit. We open up our hearts to the one who is king and say, come do what you need to do in here. You need to flip some tables, flip them. Renovation. He wasn't angry, he wasn't, oh, he was angry, but it wasn't a thoughtless anger. This was a loving, intentional anger. He had love for the temple. He's saying, this is the place where people are supposed to meet with God. That's what prayer is. Communion with God. This place was intended to be a place where people could gather and connect with him. Friends, that's how we were designed. We were designed to be connected with God in right relationship. He's God, I'm not. And there's beautiful, loving communion that's intended. And so disobedience requires this renovation of the heart. Listen, if you've missed everything else this morning, I want you to catch a couple things here as I wrap up, all right? In the same way that man's disobedience in the garden created this damaging separation, Jesus' obedience in the garden leads to redemption. Because in a different garden, on a different day, when he's facing the reality of his trial and his death, he's talking to his father. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. 
friends, you gotta hear this, okay? I believe we should obey God, absolutely. But friends, your obedience is not the solution to our disobedience. Jesus' obedience is the solution to our disobedience. He's the only one that ever perfectly obeyed his whole life. And in that garden, on that day, he did what we should have been doing from the beginning. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, it's the obedience of Christ that redeems our lives. And so all I can do is sit back and go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you didn't shirk your responsibility on my behalf. You humbled yourself and came to this earth. You believed your father. And so you laid down your pride and came as a humble king. And you walked in an obedience that I never could walk in so that I could be saved and redeemed. Because here's the other reality, friends. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, us taking it and eating it and trying to make ourselves God and make ourselves king. That's what destroyed us. But can I tell you, there's another tree. Guys, the cross is the ultimate tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When I look at the cross, I see what evil really is. You don't wanna know what sin does? That's what it does. It kills, it destroys. And Jesus went there willingly and ate of the fruit of that tree for me and you. We look at the cross and we see the reality of evil and the, the havoc that it wreaks, but we see something else. We see ultimate goodness on the cross. We see God's incredible love for us. And friends, Jesus now invites us to come and eat. What did he say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. We're invited to eat from that tree. I can look at that tree and go, God, look where my evil has led. Unbelief is not some minor thing. Pride is not some small little whatever. Disobedience isn't just, oh, it's not that big a deal. I just kind of did what I wanted. No, unbelief, pride, disobedience, it's sin and sin destroys. And so I can look at the cross and see the results of evil. And I can look at the cross and see the goodness of God doing on my behalf what I could never do myself. I can have faith when I recognize my Savior Jesus on the cross. I can humble myself when I see my humble King on the cross. I can repent of my disobedience when I see the lengths to which Jesus obeyed to save and rescue me. Friends, sin is no small thing it's not popular to talk about sin anymore. We're too modern for that. We've just, we totally like redefine sin or just don't talk about it at all. Things that we'd like to be able to do or we'd like to be able to approve of so it doesn't cost us anything. We just stop calling them sin. Sin's real. And it destroys. It destroys the people living in sin. We harm each other as the result of sin. It does separate us from God and it separates us from each other too. Love redeems, heals, forgives, restores. Love never fails. 
Friends, this week, as, as we're moving towards all that we reflect on, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, we gotta start here. We have to see sin for what it really is. And then we can see Jesus for who he really is and what he does for us. Amen? Amen. Listen, I wanna invite you guys. I'm gonna pray for us here. And I just want you to think about these three things. Like, Lord, has there been any just unbelief that's been creeping in? You know, maybe it's, maybe you're wrestling with him as God, but like maybe it's even just an area of your life you're struggling with and there's doubt that's creeping in. Ask God just to reveal himself to you in a fresh way that you could see him as your king right there in the middle of that struggle, that questioning, that doubt. Ask him for a revelation. You might be filled with some faith. You know, faith is a gift from him. God, give me that gift. Maybe you're already recognizing some areas where you just let pride take root. You've been holding him at arm's length. You're like, hey, maybe I'm not shutting him out of my whole life, but maybe there's this little closet over here and there's definitely some tree branches up. There's, there's separation in a relationship I have where pride has crept in and it's harming that relationship. Ask him to bring a good revolution. Revolt against your own pride. Humble yourself before the king. Maybe the, maybe the reality is you just know, I'm, just, I'm operating in out-and-out disobedience. I don't, I don't know, like I don't, I don't have some like insight into your thing, but like the, you know and the Lord knows, maybe there's something that's been an ongoing struggle or just disobedience has kind of made its home there. I'm just, I'm cooperating with it. I'm acting it out. There's the opportunity for redemption. Jesus obeyed where we can't. We can repent. We can humble ourselves. We can put him back in his proper place as king in our lives. And if we let him, he'll come deal with all the stuff. Like, I can't get that table out of there. It's just stuck. It's like, ah, no problem. I know how to flip those over. I know how to rearrange things. He'll renovate. He'll restore and make something beautiful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your incredible love. God, it's hard, to even, it's hard to even put all of this into words, much less to just, just see you in all of your glory, who you are. But God, we're in awe of you this morning. God, we, we recognize the reality of sin in our lives. Unbelief, pride, just outright disobedience. God, we, we wrestle with that. But Jesus, thank you that you are our savior, that you're a good king that you redeem, you forgive, you restore. And so God, would you speak to us in truth? We're done cooperating with lies. Would you speak to us in truth? God, show us anything that you want us to see. May we receive you as our savior and our king. And Lord, would you equip us? God, it's hard living in this world that doesn't see you, recognize you, honor you, obey you. God, help us be carriers of good news. Help us to know how to, like we don't have to preach a sermon, but help us to know how to talk to people about the danger of sin and the salvation that is in you alone. God, as this truth sinks into our hearts more and more, may we be carriers of it to a world in need that's being destroyed by sin. God, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your presence with us. 
that corrects and heals and redeems our lives and empowers us to be carriers of your good news to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.